This week's episode of the Nerdist Writers Panel is brought to you by T-Fury. T-Fury is the original pop culture t-shirt destination, selling unique designs every day since 2008. You can snag their shirts for only 24 hours, starting at midnight each day. Missing a shirt from the past and want to get it again? Head to the T-Fury Gallery, where you can buy some old designs still in print and vote on others to come back from the dead. Every two to four weeks, T-Fury adds more designs to their gallery, so be sure to keep an eye out for the return of your favorite shirts. But you should really just buy them the first time around. So visit T-Fury every day and then get a shirt because it's gone after 24 hours. T-Fury shirts cover all of your favorite topics and fandoms. They've got everything from gaming, sci-fi, anime, TV, movies, pop culture, and more. Their t-shirts change daily, so check back as often as you'd like. Daily. Also, don't forget about the T-Fury After Hours sale. If you miss the day's shirt by only a little, they keep the sale going into the wee hours of the morning just for you. Check out tfury.com slash nerdist and see what today's shirt is all about. Now entering Nerdist.com. It's the Nerdist Writers Panel on the Nerdist Podcast Channel. Ben Blacker talking writing with writers. Welcome to the Nerdist Writers Panel. This is Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the Nerdist Writers Panel. Thanks for listening. Follow me on Twitter at Ben Blacker, just like it sounds. Uh, I myself am a TV writer. I've written for the shows Supernatural, Super Ninjas, and I'm currently working on a DreamWorks animated program, which I will tell you more about when I'm allowed to, but it's a lot of fun. I'm also the co-creator of the Thrilling Adventure Hour, a stage program in the style of old-time radio, available as a podcast on the Nerdist Network, monthly at Largo, and touring all over the country uh, in 2014. Find out more at thrillingadventurehour.com. With a background as a journalist, comic book writer, and feature writer, our first panelist is the creator of NBC's Dracula. Please welcome Cole Haddon. Hello. Very dark. Yes. That's all right. It's Sue Nerdist, if anything happens. They have all the money. Hi, welcome. Hello. Uh, speak in there so people know what you sound like. Hello. Just like that. <laughs> Uh, with a long list of enviable credits, including Picket Fences, Chicago Hope, Carnival, The Riches, and Flash Forward, our next panelists are the creators of the drama The Education of Max Bickford and are currently working on the final season of The Killing. Please welcome Don Prestwich and Nicole Yorkin. Hello. Watch your step. Uh, please say hello into the microphones. Hello. And, and, who you are, and which is which? I'm Nicole. <laughs> I'm Dawn. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, and finally, uh, our final panelist has the bad luck of creating a huge hit uh, out of his first professional work. <laughs> Good luck to him. Uh, please welcome Philip Isco. Welcome. Uh, Philip, let us start with you, because I know there are lots of sleepyheads here. 
Okay. Um, let's talk about this. Uh, what was it? A, a mid-season finale or an actual finale? Whatever the big thing that just happened was. It was a season finale. It was the season, season finale. Season one finale. Yep. Congratulations. Thank you. Thank you. Um, let's talk about this episode and uh, the conversations that went on in the room leading up to it. The kind of the big decisions that happened around this episode. Sure. Um, I mean, we the the big. Twist, I'm, and I'm going to spoil this twist, so I, I apologize for anyone who hasn't seen it. But uh, the twist of John Noble being the son of Crane, uh, Ichabod, and Katrina was uh, we came up with that pretty early on, like developing the pilot almost. Oh, wow. I mean, it was, it was very early on when we were sort of creating the series document for the show. So we knew we were heading there. We didn't know entirely what Henry, Jeremy, John Noble's sort of character was going to be all about, per se, but we sort of knew that that was the end goal that we wanted to get to. Um, I think that we knew that, we hoped that people wouldn't put together that a man in his 60s was the son of, of Tom Meissen and uh, Katya Winter. But uh, that was sort of very early on in the, in the, in the discussions. As for the other stuff, the, the, the purgatory and, and separating uh, Crane and Abbey and all of that, that was something that uh, early on in sort of the blue sky period of, of season one that we figured out we were heading towards. So. Uh, and then, you know, can you talk a little bit about how the story was doled out throughout the season? I mean, you, you guys had a lot of story crammed into this yeah, first story, season. Yes. Did it feel like too much at times? Uh, it depends on who you ask. Um, I mean, <laughs> to you, did it feel like too much? It, it, I mean, I think that we sort of, we have tried to do sort of dial the show up to 11 and do that every week and try to do something that's big and fun and, and exciting and sort of in the, I guess, in the model of, you know, kind of what American Horror Story is doing and what you're seeing a lot of now of shows that are trying to go very big and bold and, and exciting. And I think that this show lends itself very well to that. So it didn't, it didn't feel like too much story per se, um, especially since we knew sort of from 30,000 feet what we wanted to do for the season. It was really just about parsing it out and figuring out which episodes would be about which sort of nugget that we were heading towards. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, I want to jump over here to Cole for one second because it's sort of on the same track. You know, you guys had a lot of story in this first season on Dracula. Yeah. yeah. Uh, tell us a little bit about putting that together with your... You had a, a great room. Oh, we did. Uh, tell us a little bit about putting that together and doling out pieces of story and, and what, especially from the source material you wanted to use. Oh, well, the source material was was where everything stu- everything really began. Uh, every innovation, uh, or uh, I, I don't know uh, how we shit on the source material, <laughs> as some people might consider it. Uh, but but it, it began with the source. material. It was the starting point. Yeah, yeah and it, and it was very for me. I I think we we worked hard to try to stay true uh, to the the source material. Uh, mostly. The, the things that I read between the lines, mm-hmm. I just tried to uh, um, to make uh, all surface. I mean, for example, Lucy Westenra being uh, a lesbian, I always thought she was in the book. So mm-hmm. it seemed obvious to me to, to do it in the actual series. Uh, and so when we came into the room, uh, I had already more or less laid out five seasons uh, in a, a document. And mm-hmm. At the end of it, it's probably about 75% of, of sort of the premise of what season one was going to be. We always, the episode, the series, uh, the season ends uh, exactly as it was laid out. And as a room, we just, uh, we took uh, that skeleton and just slapped a lot of meat on it. And, uh, and yeah, uh, kept adding stuff. Sometimes, you know, as, as the story evolved, mm-hmm. more would get crammed in there than necessary. But... 
I, I grew up on, uh, on a lot of British television, and so the idea that there were going to be so many intersecting storylines uh, and that stuff wouldn't be resolved for six, seven, eight episodes and stuff that was dropped in episode two wouldn't come out until later, uh, I'm not sure if it works entirely well at network uh, for, for audiences, uh, how much uh, we packed in. Uh, but do, you, do you feel like that mode of storytelling worked for you as writers, though? We all enjoyed it. We we were very happy. That counts. Uh, that yes. counts for something. We 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 loved the process, and it was it was nice by the time that episode eight uh, and nine rolled around that people who were uh, mm-hmm. reviewing and uh, all of us would live tweet and things like that. Uh, people began to see how everything came mm-hmm. together, uh, and so that's. Uh, that was sort of a level of patience uh, that maybe it was too much to ask of, of uh, uh, network audiences. Uh, but we, we crammed a lot. <laughs> we, we crammed a lot in there. Indeed. Yeah, I mean, it, it is sort of a different mode of watching television, right? And it's something that we're kind of all in the middle of right now. And I feel like, Don and Nicole, you guys can speak to this, having just come from The Killing, you know, that at once had a lot of story, but it was also a lot of emotional story. It never felt like it was jam-packed in the way that, you know, something propulsive and and kind of crazy like uh, Sleepy Hollow feels like. Tell us about doling out that story. Well, <laughs> this is the, our fourth season that we're breaking right now. So we've been there from the beginning, and um, we always started with knowing what the end of the first season would be and the end of the second season. Mm-hmm. You know, the the first um, two seasons were actually one mystery, mm-hmm. and we knew that from the very beginning. It was based on a Danish show, and so we sort of worked backwards. We knew we couldn't have the same murderer as in the Danish mm-hmm. program. As people would have seen that coming, so um, we just you know, and we just sort of parsed it out bit by bit and figured out how all twelve episodes would sort of lay out and then start working on the characters. Mm-hmm. How do you avoid... I remember uh, we had Vina Sood who created the mm-hmm. series uh, on one of the very early panels, uh, and she talked a little bit about you know, moving story forward without moving it forward too much. Mm-hmm. Uh, and this must have been a, a constant conversation for you guys in the room on this show. Yes, it is. I mean, we're constantly... Um, what we do is we get in the room and we know we have, you know, whatever number of the episodes, we're 13 or 12 or this year we have six. Mm-hmm. And we know the world of our crime. We know, um, we kind of know, we, we spend the first few days talking about who we really think did it and how we're going <laughs> to, you know, because we, 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 you know, we decide early. That's one of the first decisions yeah. you have to make is, you know. What's the answer to the question? Mm-hmm. And then, you know, and then you know, okay, so this is the question, this is the answer that'll be at the end. So how do we how do we build this story? And we learned a lot that first season because we um, we realized I think it was the first season that, that Vina, who was really the, the one who knew about crime, you know, crime storytelling. She had um, come from cold case. She came from right? cold case. She'd never done a serialized version mm-hmm. of that though. And so, um, and and we were sort of inspired by the Danish version, and and there 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 was a tendency to have all these red herrings, and though we didn't have as many, I think, as the Danish show did, we did have red herrings, and we realized, you know, that doesn't work as well in a serialized show. It's uh, it might work in like one episode, where you know you very quickly find the answer by the end of the episode, but. Um, so what we tried to do is to not use red herrings, but to have have suspects 
who may not be the actual killer, but but or might be. You never know. But but uh, as they sort of attacked that uh, suspect, you know, and investigated them, it would, if not answer the question, would lead to the answer. So, mm-hmm. but so we learned a lot. <laughs> I'm, I'm certain, and I want to hear a little bit more about you know, the current kind of wrap-up season. Uh, but I want to go back to something that you guys kind of touched on that you were saying as well, Cole. Um, and I think you, you guys can all probably speak to this. But so, so when you came into Dracula, you had this arc planned out. Mm. Uh, were there surprises as you developed storylines with the writers there were surpri- for you? There were surprises in character decisions. Mm-hmm. Uh, How so? I think the most shocking one was... Uh, I always knew that Jonathan Harker, uh, I'm not sure how many of you watched the show, but I, I always knew that, that toward the end of the, the season he would make a, a turn and end up essentially a bad guy by the end of the season. I had no idea how that was going to happen. I knew that he had to be seduced by the bad guys and that there'd, uh, that, that would be a play. Uh, but in the room, uh, we came across this, this idea that uh, his fiance, the person he loves most, would be threatened and... Uh, and a man so his manhood so threatened would mm-hmm. act out and actually kill the man who did it, and that the way that that would change him and propel him forward. And I never saw it coming. I never imagined that Jonathan Harker would kill anybody in season one, and yet it it seemed like the absolute best decision uh, at the time. And did it come out of conversations in the room? Very vigorous conversations. Really? <laughs> it was a, it was a very it's it's. Our room was uh, very interesting. It was my first time in a in a room, and yeah. I came in really as, uh, I mean, it was my baby. It was uh, I, I knew every detail about it. I <laughs> laid out all of this stuff, uh, and things evolve, things change. Sometimes uh, uh, not in the way you you want them to, and so uh, I because it was my job really to protect the mythology. That I, I was the the mythology god uh, in in the room. Uh, I w- every day was just sort of this job of butting heads with me about uh, uh, you can't do that because in two episodes, even though we haven't broke that, this is what's going to happen. And uh, and it, it be reached a point where we started really having to break stuff without telling people that we were already breaking it, the oh, producers. Wow. So we'd often be a couple episodes ahead of what they knew uh, just because I, so much of it had been laid out, and so it became a point like, well, just put it up on the board. We know this stuff's happening, mm-hmm. and so by the end, we'd start off with two whiteboards, and by the end, I think we had eight or or nine, <laughs> oh my God. Uh, just sort of surrounding the room because we were tracking what was happening in in every episode. Hence, why so much story was was packed in sure. because we we could say in episode four what was going to pay off in nine because we were really trying to think that far ahead. Uh, I want to ask uh, you, Phil, the same question, but uh, someone remind me to follow up about being the creator but not showrunner. Because <laughs> uh-huh. uh, you can speak to that as well. Yeah. But tell me first about uh, surprises. I mean, again, you had this kind of this John Noble story mm-hmm. planned. Right. But what was some stuff that you encountered that maybe wasn't in your original document? That And, and there were a bunch of creators on this show, there we are. should say. Yes. Uh, but you were you were kind of the original, right? You, you brought uh, yeah, it to I, the I, others. I came up with the idea and, and pitched it to, to yeah. Bob and Alex. So, so how much did you have? Have going in, and then how did that evolve? And then again, once the writing team was on board, you know, honestly, it, it's. I think that my idea that I pitched them was probably a little bit smaller. <laughs> um, uh, you know, having not worked on something of this magnitude, 
Um, Bob and Alex certainly brought, you know, and they're so great at it, their talent of seeing things much bigger and much hookier. I mean, you know, they were the ones that brought um, the Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse and the Revolutionary War into the equation for all intents and purposes. You know, what I brought to them was the idea of Ichabod Crane's wife is a witch, he wakes up in a town that's very sort of Twin Peaksy that, you know, has supernatural things going on. He pairs up with a female cop, and they solve supernatural crimes together. I mean, my idea was, was far sort of higher altitude. Um, so w- once I sort of sat down with them, it became a far more drilled-down thing, and they brought so much to it, as did Len, in terms of really kind of bringing the whole thing to life and, quite frankly, making it into a television show. Um, but in terms of the surprises along the way, I mean, it, it really was sort of, you know, I'd say that Jenny's character was, was very much something that, that happened as a, a sort of step-by-step process that we really sort of embraced as, you know, we, Lindy is great, and we started to see sort of the, the potential of, of Abby and Jenny's relationship and what that could do um, for both their characters. And, yeah, how deep in were you when those conversations started to happen? Uh, well, Jenny was – we were pretty early on. I mean, I think that the Jenny situation, we we knew that, you know, the, the, the sister thing was put in the pilot. You know, we didn't conceivably have to run with it per se. And I think once we saw the potential in it and where it could go and what sort of avenues it could, could lead to emotionally, I think we really sort of wrapped our arms around that idea. I think also, you know, just sort of trying to figure out – there's just so many, you know, Katya's, Katrina's situation in Purgatory, trying to figure out how to fuse her into the fabric of the show as best as possible and, and, and really sort of figuring out the flashbacks and, and how they can really sort of move the, the story forward, I think, was all, um, you know, surprises along the way. Makes sense. Um, I, I want to make a, ask one more thing about rooms. And uh, Nicole and Don, you guys have been in some pretty heavy-hitting rooms. We've been in many rooms. You've been in many rooms and many great some rooms. Some of them were writers' yeah. rooms. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Not to brag, but you've been in rooms. We have been in rooms. <laughs> um, and and presumably, and you guys have run rooms, and presumably on your next project, uh, if it's your own, you'll be running that room. Uh, what are some of the most valuable lessons you've learned from some of the good rooms you've been in? And then we've also we've run rooms yeah. many a time, and um, a couple of things I think we've learned. One thing is, you know, who is in the room is very important, which seems obvious, but when you guys are, um, when we're all together in a room for 12 hours at a time, or however long it is at a time, it's nice if you get along and you like the people you're in the room with. Mm-hmm. And so we've been on many a show with, or a few shows with people we didn't care for, or people who are not particularly nice or particularly generous. And, you know, I guess we're always saying it's like seventh grade. You better find somebody that you can get along with and is not going to be the mean girl in the room or the, the mean boy in the room. And so, um, you know, they need to write, obviously, but they also need to be able to get along with others and they need to be able to um, talk and interact with other people, which may seem obvious, but there are certain people who yeah. just... Mm-hmm. They should be off in a room by themselves writing and not interacting with people because it's a very interactive sport. Yeah. We put them yeah. in features. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, I, I also think that um, in a room you need um, – the people in the room need to to be balanced in terms of what they bring to the show. You know, you don't want a lot of character people and, like, no no real plot people um, you need you need a good mix so that you can you can tell a good story and but there are good characters that an audience will show up for because you know our feeling is always you know the the audience 
um, audience might show up for the initial plot idea, but they stay for the characters because they they love the characters and they're their friends. You know, they become family members. Or so, they're intrigued by them. Yeah, they're intrigued and they want to know what's going on mm-hmm. and what's going to happen to them. And um, so you have to have a good mix of that. Um, and you need uh, one thing we've learned too is that you don't have to. We're just talking to these guys about um, you know what kind of hours they had in their rooms and. Um, you know, on the killing, we can have, you know, our, our hours can be 10 to 6, but, um, which is kind of a long day as far as we're concerned, but, but we, you know, we're, 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 we're there and we are supportive of it. Um, um, our feeling is a lot of times you get really good stuff out of people in about, you know, four to six hours. And then, and then, then people are really flagging. You start getting <laughs> diminishing returns. Yeah, you get diminishing returns. <laughs> and it's and not but good. yet there's this sort of um, feeling that the longer you're there, the better it is, perhaps, or the more work mm-hmm. you're doing. Mm-hmm. And that's not always necessarily the case. Yeah. yeah. I think I, I would also ask you guys, you know, you've been in rooms like uh, Melrose Place was one of your early credits, right? Yes, it was. Uh, <laughs> it was not a good room. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't going to ask. But although, what made it not a good room? <laughs> Without naming names. I'm not going to name names. I would just say that there was, um, we had gone from, I think one of our first shows, which was run by John Wells and was a, a very short-lived show he did before ER called um, Angel Street. Mm-hmm. Um, that was pretty serious about two homicide detectives, one black, one white. It was right after the LA riots. It had pretensions, I guess, or intentions to be something more than just a... <laughs> and so then um, that ended after two episodes and we were looking for a job and we went and met with the people at, at Melrose Place. At the time, Darren Starr... Um, really thought that Melrose Place could be like 30-something, which was another population at the time, which is sort of a 20-something. Yeah. And he wanted to be a serious character drama, which, of course, it did not end up being. <laughs> but so, we, that was like, we thought, he, he said, I mean, and he was really meant that. I, I wanted to be a 20-something, and we had a, I guess we, we had a 30-something spec script that he had read that made him want us. So, so we were like, all right, we're here. We're here to help you make it a 20-something. <laughs> But before we knew it, it was sort of like, okay, how can we work a lingerie show into this episode? Yeah. <laughs> or and literally, we had it's a, our sensibilities were a little bit off um, because yeah. we, our favorite argument we had was whether women call their underwear panties, as they claim, or underwear. It's like. Well, we're women. Underwear, usually. And one of the showrunners said... The big big reveal, it's underwear. (laughs) Right, right? It's underwear. One of of the showrunners, not Darren Starr, but somebody else is like, every single one of my ex-wives calls it panties. (laughs) You're like, okay, fine. You win. At a certain point, they started telling us that they were okay, they didn't need us today, and we could just stay home. <laughs> Which at first we were like, oh. and then, then our agent said, "They're paying you, absolutely, and stay home. Go write that pilot or whatever." All right. Uh, but what I did want to ask, I mean, going from a room like that and picket fences, where you know these are sort of the heyday of the network drama. Mm-hmm. Um, how big were the rooms you were in at that time? And uh, that's kind of another lesson, like the long hours. What what have you guys landed on as a good size for a room? Well, it does really depend on the number of episodes, too. Mm-hmm. You know, sure. um, I think a room can be too large. and 
We've been in rooms sort of as big as 10 people mm-hmm. in the room, which is which is a lot. But on networks, sometimes you need a lot of voices. Mm-hmm. You need a lot of brains in there who who you know can can jump up and run off and do a do an episode really write an episode really quick. Sure. Right now on the killing because we're just doing six episodes, we actually have a tiny staff. It's just us and Vina and Dan Nowak and um, Sean Weitzel. We're the, the the writing entities in the room. And that's actually made things very smooth. It goes faster, and it's tighter. Well, you can imagine with 10 people in the room and a lot of people jockeying for position and jockeying to get words in, it can it can be hard to get. The process can be difficult. Yeah. Absolutely. And the smallest staff we were ever on, <laughs> the first year of this show called Brotherhood, it was on Showtime, and it was just us, and we count as one. Yeah. And... Um, Blake Masters, who created it, and Henry Bramell, who was sort of the showrunner. And so the three of us just wrote the, the first season, the three yeah. writing entities. And how many episodes was that? It was 12, 12 yeah. or 13. Yeah, I think it's, yeah, yeah. And, and it was very efficient. Sure. Very efficient. It was great. We were all on the same page, and we just sort of um, leapfrogged over each other in terms of you know production. And yeah, so you guys were going off and producing the episodes yeah, we as well. So it was Providence. like two people in a room at the time, yeah, basically. Yeah, we had most of them written by the time we all started oh, yeah, started production. Like, so that made with it network. It might be difficult. To yeah, do. yeah, network would be very hard. Uh, well, I, and I wanted to talk to you guys. Um, you know, with these being your first television programs, and you know, good ones and network ones and expensive ones too. Uh, Very expensive were, ones. Yeah. yeah. Was that surprising to you? Oh my God, yeah. I mean, <laughs> really? I, I, the first day on set of the pilot, I was just like, I don't understand how uh, this, I mean, I, it was more of just sort of this, you know, I, I sat in front of a computer at UTA and yeah. thought of this idea and now I'm in North Carolina and they're spending, you know, tens of millions of dollars it's on magic. this thing. It's, it's, it's crazy. Magic. It was really, it was baffling, but, uh, but exciting. I mean, but just still really sort of flummoxing at the same time. I'm sure. Yeah. And, and both of you were put with uh, showrunners who had done this before. Yes. You know, they had run shows, they had run their own shows sometimes. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit about that relationship. Uh, either of you mm-hmm. wants to go first. Uh, I mean, I, you know, Mark Offen, who's our showrunner, um, who has many credits, you know, and, and has been working for, for many years in television, is, you know, it, it was a pretty symbiotic relationship for the most part. I mean, he, it, it was, you know, we have a, a lot of voices on this show, and I think that it's just sort of about, you know, everyone kind of figuring out a way to, to you know, make sure that it all kind of runs on mm-hmm. time. And, and I think that that's, you know, the showrunner's job for the most part is making sure trains run on time and that everything is sort of getting done. And, and, and he's been great at it, so I haven't had any problems with it. Well, just without stepping over on Cole's answer, because <laughs> we actually almost worked with him on Dracula. Mm-hmm. And, yes. Which would have been fun. Yes. But we have been in that position many a time with a first-time show creator. Yeah. And... Um, it, you know, we've we've seen it happen, and we've se- we've been in that position. And our feeling is always that if you're brought in to run somebody else's show, you're there to sort of help support their vision. Now, it doesn't always work out that way because you often get sort of a clash of the egos, you know, between the showrunner and the show creator. And um, you know, depending on the network or the studio, they might side with one or the other or try to play you off of each other. Mm-hmm. But you know, like we we ran the riches with Dimitri Lipkin, who's you know, was had was just a playwright, and and um, you know, ultimately we just came to the, just a playwright. Just, just a playwright. <laughs> no big deal. Never seen anything on the screen before. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's a it's a delicate relationship. Absolutely, really, yeah. Because you know, as a showrunner, you 
you could conceivably step on the show creator and maybe get away with it, depending mm-hmm. on where you are. Yeah. And that's not what you're supposed to be doing. So. It, it's a fascinating uh, relationship. Uh, I mean, even the... Uh, <laughs> The first meetings with anyone you meet with that you're considering uh, working with on the show, you pretty much assume that they're evil. And, yeah. uh, <laughs> it's like dating. It's, it, yeah. it, it's, you, you, so you're going to stab me in the back. I'm listening to everything you say, and then you're going to fire me, right? That's how this is going to work. Uh, uh, so you're repeating everything, that, that you're, all of the, the things I need to hear to trust you. But uh, I don't. <laughs> uh, and so it's it's even that process is is very uh, interesting. I, I I enjoyed actually uh, meeting with them, and we came very close. Uh, yeah. I think to to working together. I was very excited about that. Uh, uh, and then I ended up working with uh, Dan Knopf, who created uh, Carnival, which was you know, Dan and I. I, I think. The moment we realized we could be honest with one another, even about the things we didn't necessarily like about each other or our processes. Uh, it, Do you like about each other personally? <laughs> Sometimes. Well, I have a terrible habit of, I, I don't know how to censor myself. I'm, I'm also the guy that, that you need to, uh, in, in studio calls or things like this, that... Uh, uh, we, all, we, we were really part of a triumvirate with Harley Payton, uh, who goes all the way back to writing Lesson Zero, worked on Twin Peaks, a long history in the business. Uh, and so it was really the, a triumvirate uh, of us. And so I was a rookie, and I'm of the opinion that if something's a really terrible idea, and after about five minutes of listening to it, somebody should say so. Uh, and apparently you're not supposed to do that. I mean, that's what I've heard. Uh, but I yeah. yeah. Uh, and, and so we had to work out a system where there would be a hand going up and down to say when I was allowed to speak. Like, like this is not the moment to, to, to give your honest opinion. Okay. Uh, and so it, 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 uh, it, it can be at times challenging. Uh, at the end of the day, Dan executed probably about 70% of what I would have wanted to do myself, which I think is probably a pretty, pretty, good, pretty good rate. Uh, there were many things that happened uh, story-wise that I don't necessarily agree with or, or wasn't passionate about. Uh, but... You know, it, it, he, for the most part, uh, you know, for the overwhelming part, really respected my vision. And, uh, you know, the other stuff was just more uh, style differences and, and things like that. So, yeah. Like, like what? I am a raging progressive liberal. And the show is designed <laughs> as sort of science versus religion. And uh, Dan is a little on the other side of the aisle. Uh, and I... Was not told that beforehand, uh, and and so in a show that that uh, I mean, uh, like I'm I'm a pretty vocal atheist, and like in in a show where Dracula was supposed to have been created by the supernatural and basically be okay tearing down God anyway, it, it was it, there were a lot of interesting uh, allegorical things for the the world today, and at the end of the day, it's now a show about an evil cabal of capitalists rather than a, a fundamentalist Christian organization that was really a, like a story about fundamentalism not Christianity but fundamentalism uh, versus uh, science and the promise of science you know, so things like that uh, the, those sorts of uh, 
tonal or stylistic difference. The things that like that I was passionate about. Also, we we would comment. We would have long arguments in front of uh, the room or debates, I guess you would call them, over what comedy is. <laughs> over what comedy is. So well, that's the best way to solve it. Yes. It. <laughs> no, it's but like everyone. We would get emails from the other writers. Like I just had to listen to a thirty-minute argument about what is comedy, and uh, and so uh, and Dracula's I, not a comedy, right? I mean, pardon me. Dracula's not a comedy. Uh, I thought it, sure originally there was a lot it. of black comedy in it, like a lot of dark oh, comedy, okay, okay, uh, okay. and uh, and a lot of that sort of uh, went Fine, away because right. apparently I'm not funny. <laughs> 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 that is uh, so, but it, but but at the end of the day, it's like it's it ends up being a synthesis of a lot of different voices, and I mean, including Harley in the room. Uh, it, I I don't think the show could exist in the state it does without Harley uh, as as being an integral member. So, as much as Dan was the showrunner, Harley had far more experience than Dan. So when it when it came to certain things, Harley I would, would always know more. Uh, <laughs> And so it was an interesting uh, push-pull of the, the, the three of us. I, I want to talk uh, just for another minute about some of this room stuff. And kind of in a practical sense, you know, I think you guys all touched on something that's important, you know, for a writer going work, working in TV. There is this balance of egos and talent and personalities. How do we navigate that? Delicately. Yeah. <laughs> in the room, how you navigate in the In the room, yeah. Um, that's really a good question. Well, you know, the golden rule is always a good way to go. You know, just you mm-hmm. treat people the way you want to be treated. And, um, you know, you you check your ego at the door because when you're doing a show, it's a, you know, it's a synergistic, you know, event, hopefully. And everybody is bringing their best, hopefully, to the table. And out of all of that, something should, even better, should be happening. So, mm-hmm. um you know, you play well with others. You know? I mean, the advice we were given on our first show was, you know, just sit back, don't talk. At first, yeah. listen, get the feel of the room. And, you know, it's funny. We've had to give that advice to many mm-hmm. new writers mm-hmm. in rooms. And just like, okay, it's not a contest. You, you don't, don't have to prove yourself. Yeah, don't yeah. talk <laughs> as much as other people in the room unless you really feel like saying something. And if you pitch an idea twice and people reject it, don't pitch it a third time because that's irritating. Right. Yeah. And um, so it, it's good to actually, you know, sit back and get, get a feel for the room when you're starting out. And it, it, it's always good to listen. One way or the other, it's good to listen to other people yeah. and not try to win. Did you want to add to that? Yeah, I mean, having, having never been in a room before, I didn't really know what to expect. <laughs> <laughs> so I, it really was sort of... You know, having worked in an agency for so long, you you only hear horror stories about about writers' rooms. You never hear any good things. I mean, I guess you don't hear good things at agency anyway. But I mean, that's just sort of nothing good is ever said at an agency. (laughs) Accurate, one hundred percent accurate. Um, So you know, I think that I went into it expecting a whole bunch of just crazy egomaniacs, just like tearing at each other, limb to limb. But it it was a surprisingly uh, much nicer environment. I I think also I sort of went into it. and I've gone into it sort of just wanting to be a better writer. So for me, it was just sort of what can I learn from everybody and how can I be better at this? But um, it is what you're saying about this. It's a chemical equation, and when you put all the right chemicals mm-hmm. together, you create something that's really special and amazing. And, it, and it's not about sort of whose idea it was or whose line was better or whatever. It's about, you know, 
you have to be a team player. I mean, it's basically what it comes down to. Yeah. yeah, everyone's goal should be to make it as good as possible, and and everyone should show up and just you know give everybody your best idea, your best lines. It may end up in somebody else's material, mm-hmm. yeah. but you're you benefit as a writer if your show is great. It makes us all look good. It makes everyone look good. Yeah. Um, I I think we may have talked about this when we did the panel in Austin, but uh, about your relationship. You know, you guys kind of had your own room before even going to a room. Yeah. Working with a partner, you know, teaches you a lot about how to work with others. Oh yeah. Can Can you guys talk a little about your process, how you guys work together, <laughs> and then how you guys work in a room together as well? Is interesting uh, to me. Yeah, that that is kind of interesting. Yeah. Well, we always used to say it's uh, just kind of. <laughs> it's, a marriage, it's a marriage without the sex. That's yeah. one of the things. So um, yep. we just sort of came together by happen chance. We were sort of um, we were at film school together. We were sharing an office together, doing our own independent things, and I think out of boredom we said yeah. we want to write something together. And, yeah. and we did not know how to do that. And we hadn't yeah. read anything about it, so... No. Well, we you thought, didn't know how to work with a partner, or you didn't know how to write anything? Well, <laughs> no. I, 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 kind of both, but yeah, yeah. yeah. but de- definitely the partnership thing, yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. So we thought, you know, if you... Now we've studied partners, and different partners do different things. Yeah. Sometimes, you know, they'll split up storylines, or they'll split up acts, and then they'll trade, and they'll rewrite each other. We just started from the very beginning writing every word out loud together. <laughs> because we are, we are both of us, um, own first, ch- first children, right, in our families. We're the birth order, we're, we're both, like, you know, in charge. So we would, we would both sit there with our computers, and we would say it out loud, right, yeah. what we were doing. Yeah, and then ultimately... That was not as efficient as it could be. (laughs) (laughs) What we came to is that I always type because I like to look at the screen. Don would rather sit on the couch and think about it. And we still, you know, say every word out loud together. We don't fight about every word, but sometimes it seems that way. I know. We know we can get really hung up on just a word of description. (laughs) And which I always find really reassuring, actually, because we care. We care about every word on the page, and we still do, no matter what. We fight about, you know, dumb stuff, but it matters to us. It really matters. So what happens when you disagree? It's ugly. (laughs) (laughs) It can be ugly. I mean, ultimately, we have to come up with another. If neither of us will give in, Mm -hmm. then we have to come up with a third solution. Mm -hmm. We have to come up with a third better idea. Which is often... Better. I, yeah, I think it's actually why we're we are. Some people might say we are good at what we do because um, because we we sometimes have to find the you know really different unusual decision you know because because we are not agreeing you know we are both seeing something really clear and so we we find something else and it turns into this really amazing thing for us sometimes so. Yeah, yeah, we love it. It's it, but it is. It's an interesting experience just working together, and then, and you know, because we we know each other so well, our personalities. You know, we'll have like we have the little foibles and little things that we irritate each other. But should we air those out now? Yeah, <laughs> probably not. But but what we what we we always leave leave when we were, when we fight or get get cranky about what we're writing we. We leave it in the room, you know, after, mm-hmm. at the end of the day, because it's just, right. we, we've just done it for so long. We know it's unimportant to, to keep fighting about it. In the room, it's interesting, because I think as a team, you might expect us to to um, team up against other people. 
But for the most part, um, we really disagree in rooms. <laughs> we, will, we often will disagree in the room. What happens? That's really interesting. I, well, we're just really different people. Sure. So, yeah, yeah and, and you know, the great thing if you're a showrunner or you're a show creator and you have a team is that you get two for the price of one. Mm-hmm. So you know, they pay us one salary, but you get two <laughs> brains. So when we're in the actual writer's uh, room, we are two separate people. Yeah. And then we write something, we have to actually find a way to come together and make it, you know, cohesive. But, um, yeah. so we'll just disagree and then, you know, usually we're not the only ones in the room, so. Right. You know. and, and what are your personalities in the room? God, I wouldn't even know. Oh my God. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> Jewish from Los Angeles. <laughs> Presbyterian from Dallas. <laughs> I think that explains it all. Um, That's some variations. <laughs> sure. One thing I can tell you that Nicole hates, um, she hates poop jokes. <laughs> you heard it here. She refuses. There are so many in the killing, though. Oh, my God. I know. Thank God. So, thank God. We, we, <laughs> Remind me to tell you about the fecal art sequence that was deleted. <laughs> I, from I our storyline. Yes, it. it wasn't mine, but... <laughs> <laughs> I'm from Texas, you know. We love scatological humor. And and anything involving a toilet, Nicole's like, no. Not into it. No. <laughs> but no but it's so funny. It's so funny. No. And I always, if I can, bring various animals into the room. <laughs> nice. I have dogs and, like and parrots. Bring them in. <laughs> We've had many a parrot on the show. You know, <laughs> pit bull in the room, whatever it takes, sort of relaxes everybody. <laughs> a pit bull in the room relaxes everybody? <laughs> it's actually funny. This this year on The Killing, there's a writer who's phobic about dogs. I've never had that happen before. And I had to pick up this, I have this big pit bull. I had to pick her up from the vet and bring her to the office. And he was, and then she was banging on the door. She didn't want to be in my office. She wanted to be with us. Mm-hmm. And so I just had to sort of put her, sit her on my lap in the corner of the room and just say, are you okay? Are you okay? Are you having a panic attack? It's like, no, I'm okay. Just don't let her move. Just don't let her come over here. It's <laughs> usually not that bad, though. <laughs> um, Philip, tell us about your writing background. Uh, and, like we've, and lack thereof? Well, I mean, obviously you wanted to write. Yes, Otherwise, obviously. you wouldn't have hatched an idea in the first place. Yes, uh, but we've, we've heard a little bit about your, your background at the agency. And what were right. you doing at UTA? Uh, I was an assistant mm-hmm. at, uh, in the TV lit department um, uh, for my now agent. Who was, That's awesome. Uh, who was here. <laughs> That's great. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I worked for him for five and a half years. Yeah. And I was uh, writing pilots um, on the weekends. I wrote five pilots and two features while working for him. Um, so I was, I was you know, trying to be as prolific as I could be and, and, and learning as much as I could from, um, from the agency. And it was a phenomenal sort of graduate degree in learning the, sure. the, uh, the business side of things. I mean, I went to film school back in Toronto and, uh, and moved out here for the job at UTA, which sponsored my visa so I could actually <laughs> live here. Um, but it was, a, it was a, an unbelievable experience to learn about... You know, not just what sells, why it sells, and obviously that's incredibly important, but um, the the networking of it and realizing how important relationships are and how vital that is to to any sort of career as you move forward. But um, can, yeah, can you tell us a little bit about that and when you know sure. those ideas started to take shape for you? I mean, pretty early on, you know, you you, you realize. You know, an agency functions based on information and based on relationships. I mean, that's really the only way that they can function. So pretty early on, you realize that people either return your phone call or they don't return your phone call. Um, and I think that, you know, it was, it was about learning why people want to return your phone call. 
um, and and why they want to be in business with you, you know, and 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 how to be. Um, I mean, I, I honestly believe that you catch more flies with honey than vinegar. Um, agencies don't really function that way. Um, but I, I do think that that's sort of the way that I've lived my life. And, and uh, I think that <clears throat> it's about making, you know, the, the best relationships and the most friends you can. Um, and because of that, that's how I got in, you know, rooms pitching Sleepy Hollow. So, you know, that's sort of. Yeah, I, w- I just want to add that if you heard him say he, during that time on weekends. Yes, weekends. And nights, he was yeah. writing, he wrote five pilots and how many features? Two features. Two yeah. features. That is a lot of work. He spent that, obviously he spent that time working and working, and he would write something, and then he would move on to the next thing, and he would never sit on one thing and say, this is True. it. And that's how you become a writer, is you... You, because with everything you write, you get better and better, right? I hope so. Yeah. <laughs> I really hope it's, so. It's not like you wake up one day and say, I'm just going to pitch this idea, and they're going to love it, and I'm going to have a television show, right? It's true. You it's worked true. hard I for did that. that. Well, thank you. That's very <laughs> okay. nice of you to say. Do not diminish that. <laughs> yeah, can, can you tell us a little bit, you know, from a practical aspect sure, or sure. from a process aspect, uh, what How you learned writing, in yeah. you know, working on those projects? You know, honestly, I, I think that... Um, a tremendous amount of credit is is due to to my agent um, who read everything that I wrote and and gave me feedback and and did give me notes and um, you know told me when something was good or when something was bad um, but but I do think that I never you know and this sounds egotistical I never wrote anything for anybody but myself because I didn't really have to mm-hmm. you know at that at that time in my life I was just writing things that I wanted to write that I felt were helpful and cathartic or whatever the case might be creatively rewarding. Um, and I, I sort of feel like that's the way you write stuff in the early days of your career. I mean, don't, don't try to chase the zeitgeist or do anything mm. like that because I, I feel like you'll, ne- you'll, you'll never behind. catch it. Yeah, you'll, yeah. you'll never catch yeah. it. So. And as a writer who you know, is <clears throat> not working for a TV show or something, you have the time. And, Absolutely. You know, yeah. Do it for yourself. Yeah. I mean, do it for, for your own, just for the love of writing, as cliche and cheesy as that sounds. I, I do think that that's what it should be about, you know? What was the, uh, what was the tone, what was the tenor, what was the subject of those previous pilots? Um, <laughs> drastically dissimilar to Sleepy yeah. Hollow. Um, you know, I, I think I wrote things, um, smaller things, more character-oriented, more sort of less concept and hooky and more about sort of um, immersing myself in a world filled with people that I cared about, that I wanted to spend time with. Um, I mean, as a viewer, that's that's sort of what it all comes down to. Everything else is smoke and mirrors, if you ask me. And, and I think that that's it's all great, and they're really cool smoke and mirrors. But yeah. ultimately, it's about loving these characters and investing mm-hmm. in them and wanting to be with them. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I you know wrote pilots about uh, wrote a pilot about a, a teenage Japanese Jewish girl being uh, sent to an art school rehab in Minnesota, which could not sound more dissimilar to Sleepy Hollow. <laughs> Um, so that, that was definitely sort of more in the in the tone of, of stuff that I was writing. But, you know, uh, Sleepy Hollow came from just a, a confluence of, of a bunch of different things. Hmm. So. And what was, what was the stuff that was influencing you on these earlier projects? Uh, I mean, Six Feet Under is probably my favorite show, if I had to mm-hmm. pick a show. Um, I, I think that that was sort of, you know, I, I love Friday Night Lights and... and Shows that are again sort of more character and more about a, a place and a and tone. I mean, I think that Six Feet Under does a lot of things that I love. It was sort of procedural in its own weird way. You had a death every week that ultimately mm-hmm. fed into the stories of, of these of these people's lives. It was darkly comedic and it was dealing with you know heavy you know existential ideas, um, and it was funny. So I don't know. It sort of does all the things that I 
hope to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on some level, hope that we're doing a little bit with Sleepy Hollow. Sure. Uh, and as long as we're on the subject, what were the, the what was the Influence? confluence of things that I, led to Sleepy Hollow? Um, it was me looking at public domain titles <laughs> and, <laughs> and realizing that they were free. Um, <laughs> And uh, I saw Washington Irving, and he wrote Sleepy Hollow, and he wrote Rip Van Winkle. And I wanted to do a show. Weirdly, I was thinking a lot about Quantum Leap and (laughs) wanting to do a show about time travel, but knowing that the second you say time travel in a pitch, it's like, goodbye. Like, people, their eyes glaze over, and they're like, no. Um, So I knew I couldn't do something that was about time travel, so I thought about putting Ichabod Crane to sleep and having him wake up in 2013 and that was sort of it was just really seeing those two titles next to each other and, and loving the Tim Burton movie and, and all that stuff mixed into it but it was sort of Twin Peaks and Tim Burton and, and you know, luck <laughs> uh, Cole, what's your background as a writer? Uh, I, I didn't come out here until I was 28 mm-hmm. and so before that I mostly traveled uh, and uh, slept on couches, and by that I mean around the world, things like that. Uh, and I wrote constantly, and constantly convinced myself that I was going to do something about it, and just <laughs> never did. Uh, I actually moved out here when I was 20 and lasted two months and moved back home because I knew that I'd end up 30 playing video games and smoking pot and talking about the script I was going to write, and nothing would have changed. Uh, so uh, at, at 28, I, uh, it, I had taken this long route to graduating college because I'd go travel for a year and a half and come back and go for a semester and I'd get bored sitting still. It, uh, it was too much. Uh, and so I, I graduated at 28 and at that point uh, I decided to move to L.A. but I didn't have a job and I didn't want to do anything that other people uh, would normally do to make money. And so I, I literally <laughs> manufactured a resume that said that I was a successful music and film journalist and created a new last name for myself, which is the one I have now. And uh, within three months was making enough money to move out here. And my first interview uh, was Jake Gyllenhaal and then moved on to like Heath Ledger. And like I sat down with Tarantino for an hour. Like I, I could sell 10 more projects and I wouldn't get an hour just talking film with Tarantino. Uh, and so I've, for like five years, interviewed like A-list stars and all of this That's stuff. Incredible. But like, like Scott Frank and I've talked to writers about process and they'd always go five minutes in, they'd say, you don't give a shit about this other stuff. Like you want to talk about screenwriting, right? And so like, what do you need to know? And, they, 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 and so I get the quotes I need for the article and then we talk for another 20, 30 minutes about, uh, uh, and I have several friends that I made doing that, uh, filmmakers and musicians and whatnot that are, are still in my life. Uh, and so I, I wrote stuff while, while I was out here. Um, that uh, was generally not something that anybody would ever rep. And uh, <laughs> what I, what, uh, what media what medium were, was it? And uh, always why? features. I'm okay. always, I'm primarily a feature guy. Uh, and why was it stuff that no one would rep? Uh, just smaller arts. I mean, the first thing I wrote out here was a biopic of Charles Darwin. Uh, nobody's rapping that shit. Uh, uh, and now, like, it's nice. I'm, I, I'm moving back into television, talking about miniseries and stuff in that department. So it, it circles around, but it was just, you know, smaller artsier stuff that it wasn't going to get me wrapped by somebody who, who wanted to go sell something. And I had... Uh, a, a small epiphany that the vehicle of the story was the the vehicle of what I wanted to talk about didn't uh, matter. What mattered was the ideas that 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 I was interested in, 
And so I also took a similar route. Uh, and uh, I've sold nine things based on public domain. I mean, I'm, I am a glorified hack. With, that in the, in the middle of it, like, I try to pack these interesting ideas in it. But that's, that's the first thing was I, I, I got repped off of a, a, a re-envisioning of King Solomon's Mines. Uh, and uh, I, that went out, didn't sell. Six months later, I sold my first pitch. And... And I've sold uh, seven things on pitch now, and uh, out of the the nine, and uh, and all of them were uh, reimaginings of things I loved as a kid. And uh, you came, you did this a little bit later than me. Uh, I had Quartermain go out two months after Sherlock Holmes was uh, announced, uh, and and so that was after Pi- Pirates was a huge hit. So it looked like I was in the zeitgeist. So pure <laughs> luck, everybody, like what used to be uh, something you couldn't sell, which was the period action venture, yeah. now everybody wanted it, and, I, and this is stuff I loved deeply as a kid, and so I wasn't actually writing the zeitgeist, I just really loved this stuff. I loved reimagining, yeah. like I loved Universal and Hammer monster movies, and uh, all of these swashbuckler books, and so uh, just re- reimagining all of this stuff was, and was, was very easy. Besides the love of the source material, you know, was that in part because for you the the medium didn't matter that you did feel like you could say what you wanted to say through this thing that already existed, and that's an easy gateway. Well, you somebody has to pay you so you can you can pay your bills, <laughs> and so I was interested in the ideas and what people. Would, would let me cram those ideas into. And it turned out that was quite often uh, these, these classic sure. characters uh, because they had some sort of brand recognition. And, uh, uh, and it, it worked out very uh, well for me uh, so far. I, I'm now really exhausted doing it. Uh, it it's amazing when, when, when someone brings me into a meeting and they try to bring up something like, I've never thought to, to do that. Uh, and it's really... really <laughs> There are only like eight books left that, that exactly. people are yeah. in active development on, and they're yeah. not good ones. You know, yeah. like, these are not the shows you, you, you want to make or movies you want to make. Uh, so, yeah. Yeah, were you, uh, Philip, were you aware of the other Sleepy Hollow pitches that were out when you were taking yours out? <laughs> uh, we became aware of it uh, moments before our really? uh, pitch for ABC. Um, so it was, it was sort of a, oh, Okay, I mean, I mean, it, it's. It, it, I don't think any of us were were um, particularly concerned, and I don't mean that in a belittling way. I just no. mean I, I don't think that our project was similar to that project, um, but we did become aware of it uh, shortly after. I think, yeah, I mean, we had pitched it to three places at that point already, so it was our last pitch, and then we had this other Sleepy Hollow project all of a sudden. But <laughs> I mean, it, it was. It sort of feels a little inevitable, like you're saying. I mean, yeah. it's it's so. I mean, how many Wizard of Oz projects were there? I mean, five, I think, five? this year. Alice I mean, and did any of them go? Yeah. Yeah. By the way, my wife became aware of your project mm. two months before her Sleepy Hollow project was going out. I'm sorry. So, you know. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I convinced her to chase the, the public domain thing. Yeah. Whoops. <laughs> well, it's working for you, so at least someone in the household is working for you. Yes. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, it's... I, Everything's being reimagined. I mean, I, I had a, I had a whole bunch of other public domain ideas as well. I mean, it, it's, and the other thing too is that say what you will, but everything has been done before. I mean, there's not a whole lot of new when you really think about it. So it's all the vehicle is the same, yeah. Uh, yeah. but but you can find interesting things Absolutely. to insert into that right. uh, and, and that I think make it exciting and new. We're decidedly different than any other version of Sleepy Hollow up until this point. So I, I feel like you can 
you can kind of put a spin on almost anything and make it feel like its own animal. Mm -hmm. Oh, for sure. Um, I just want to follow up on one thing, and this will be my last question for all of you, and then we'll open it to questions from the crowd. Um, You were talking about selling all of these pitches. I sold seven pitches. Um, What is your pitching style? used to be 30 to 35 minutes of me uh, literally <laughs> pitching you everything off the top wow. of my head. Uh, and and I, would, I, I would break everything down. I knew that I, I, just with television too, I know the last shot of, of every show I pitch. Uh, and so it was very easy to run through everything uh, to pitch it all. And that got very tiring. And <laughs> Uh, for you or for the listeners? I think for everyone involved. Uh, ev- everyone involved. Uh, but it, it, it's, it takes a lot to memorize a 35-minute pitch. Is and that w- was that what you were doing? Oh, you were yeah. writing a script for it, yourself? It was, it was all off the top of my head. And uh, you'd sometimes do that three or four times hmm. a day. And good luck having a voice at the end of the second one. And, and it just it wasn't working enough. And then uh, I had a couple things sell. Dracula sold off of a, a six-page document. I never even had a meeting oh, off wow. of it. Uh, and then I realized people didn't really seem to want to hear anybody talk for 30 minutes. They wanted to hear these, these really interesting comp- like notions of conflict that they were going to get out of it. How were these characters going to feed off of one another? What's the basic hook? And after that, they seemed to tune out. Uh, and so I, I, I cut my pitches down to 15 minutes, and most of, and most of it is now off the top of my, my head, off of you know, some, some broad notes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I also... Uh, in the room, sort of say it's this is sort of your your choose your own adventure pitch. Like you want me to go off book, you want to ask questions and like <laughs> have me talk for five minutes about uh, this detail. I can do that, and and that's worked well because mostly it, at least for me, sells the notion that I know the world better than than anyone else could. And so if you are thinking about doing something in this world, there I, I come with this broad vision, uh, and so you're buying the vision, not just the hook. Uh, sure. Uh, so yeah, just sort of choose your own adventure pitch, and also just give them uh, a regurgitated public domain title uh, with, <laughs> with a fun twist. Uh, <laughs> I also feel like there's yeah. something to be said for a, a pitch should be a conversation for mm, all intents yes. and purposes. I mean, it really yeah. it shouldn't just be you dancing like a monkey for however my, many minutes. My production company is called Dancing Monkey. Oh, Pictures. is it really? Yes, because that's 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 what we are. Dance monkey, dance. We, we are. I mean, that's fair. <laughs> Yeah. But I do think, it, I mean, in, in a perfect universe, it should be a conversation. You know, it should be about them asking you questions and, and sort of feeling like, because every executive wants to feel like they're part of the yeah. actual creative process. They, and if they get excited about the, the, the eighth tier character you're talking yes. about, well, great, I can talk about that for ten minutes because exactly. I actually thought that character through. Yeah. Uh, so if you, if you come in with that, uh, if you've thought it through that much and prepared that much, uh, I just found it was, it, that was all that was important. They just wanted to be able to to ask questions and have you know every answer. And, um, <clears throat> yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Uh, Nicole and Dom, what's your preferred pitching <laughs> style? We are not people who would speak extemporaneously for 35 minutes. <laughs> just memorized. I so, was, I was yeah. earlier in, it was earlier in my career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. No more power to you. Yeah. <laughs> so we usually have a, um, a document we've written, and then we try to sort of pitch off of that, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, Feel free to look down at what we've written in case you know something uh, escapes our brain. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, at this point in life, it's like we really need to have like in front of our face. <laughs> <laughs> and the amazing thing is, it, it doesn't bother anyone. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they don't. 
I think it, it, we always, I think we imagine in the feature world, you have to sort of put on a show when you go in and you pitch. And in television, you don't have to put on a show. You just go in and explain clearly your idea. Mm. And they're perfectly happy to hear but, that. But I do think more and more um, people have realized, and maybe this is over time, that a great pitch or someone who pitches well, like some people are good writers and great pitchers, or great writers and great pitchers. But there are all those people, also those people who are incredible pitchers and then just can't deliver. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think you know networks and studios find that out. Yeah. You know that it's wow, what a great pitcher, but you know couldn't deliver on whatever it was. Yeah. But we did hear this horrifying story recently when we were in an office talking about a show and. This guy was a barista at Starbucks. He created this um, this series that somebody is inter- a great pilot, actually. Great somebody- pilot. He wrote a yeah, great not, pilot. Yeah, wrote mm-hmm. a great pilot and was brought in to pitch to networks, and completely like they started asking him questions and he just lost it. Mm. Yeah, so it was like in broadcast news. He just with the flop oh, sweat, Jesus. and he yeah. just completely oh. like his mind locked Breaks up, your heart. And, and he couldn't believe that people were like actually they took it seriously what he had written <laughs> because mm. because he he had never even taken it seriously enough, you know. And then you know, after that, he decided, and we're not sure exactly why, because it was a really compelling pilot that he just didn't want to be involved. Yeah, wow. You know, yeah. they'd be happy to bring somebody else in and run it, but I think it, it was like your worst nightmare. Pitch meeting where yeah. your mind locks, your mind freezes. Right. You can't answer a question about any character. Yeah, you know. I, I'll say I was. V- my wife is always very confused by this. But before I moved to LA, I was very antisocial. Uh, I didn't like talking uh, in groups. I couldn't get in front of people. That sort of thing. But when you arrive in LA and you're immediately sitting in front of James Cameron and uh, these things, like, after a while, like Will, Will Smith, I got very bored with the notion of being nervous in a room yeah. and so like I was so grateful I had that experience yeah. uh, beforehand because I mean in rooms I still remember uh, I would go in for these 35 minute pitches and my hand would be doing this with my pen I'd be yeah. doing my best to hold it it's like and it would like it's, it's like almost flopping away or something and I like I have to, to yeah uh, it was but it was but that's why I over prepared and now and I realized there was no passion in the pitches too mm-hmm. because I never said um I knew what I was talking about, but uh, there's something else. When, yeah. when it's you, confident, you, but it's a kind of absolutely. rote confidence. Yeah. 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 What were you going to add to that? Yeah. Was, I mean, I think it's also about sort of knowing when you have something and not buying it back. You know what I mean? Like when you have them hooked and you you sort of know it's it's it. it I mean, I was I was very lucky that I don't think I got a minute and a half into my pitch before Alex Kurtzman was like, I want to do this. And I was like, okay. I mean, I, was, yeah. I mean, wasn't going to talk any more than that. Like you said it. I, yeah. I mean, and we, and then we just sort of talked about Twin Peaks. But I, I, I do think that you know, it, it's it really is one of those things where feeling the room and, and understanding sort of the dynamics that exist there. And and I did exactly you know, I I would read off of something in the early you know pitches that I was doing, and it's true. Like, there's no blood in it. There's yeah. no sort of you need to just sort of talk and and show your passion, and hopefully that's contagious. Yeah. Great advice. All right, uh, let's get some uh, questions. Hey, Zach, are you back there? He's not there. <laughs> can, can someone bring the house lights up a little bit, please? Uh, if you have a question, as soon as it gets light in here, um, come and stand in this aisle, would you? Um, I would ask if you would keep your questions somewhat general. We have four terrific writers up here, uh, so keep your questions about the process and business about writing. Um, 
Please have your questions begin with a W or an H, not with an I. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and the other rule I have is uh, when you ask your question, I will hold the microphone up to you. Please do not touch the microphone. Uh, <laughs> I used to teach high school. Uh, can we? Is there anyone in the sound booth? <laughs> no. No. That's no? the answer. <laughs> Should I go see if I can do it? Yeah. Uh, you guys, riff. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> you want us to bail? <laughs> Yes. What is your general theory of specking in 2014? Uh, what do you want to see out of prospective writers? Original. Don't answer that. <laughs> Don't answer that. Well, Come up here. Yeah. Come get over here. <laughs> Come on. Yeah, we would we would suggest original material. Always. You are ruining this podcast. Hold on. <laughs> oh. Not that one. <laughs> Can you see all right? I'm confident none of us look good right now. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Please ask that into a microphone. Please ask into a microphone. Um, what, what, what's sort of your general theory of specking in 2014? Um, uh, you know, do people want to see more features than pilots? Do, you know, what, do genre shows play at all in, in terms of what people want to see? Uh, you know, spec episodes, that sort of thing. What's sort of each of your theory on that? Well, we, we, um, you know, we, we came up at a time where you would do a spec episode of a show that was currently on the air. And that is really not done anymore. So Don't much. do that. Uh, incidentally, what did you guys spec? Yeah, thirty something. Thirty something. Oh, right. Yeah, yeah. Was that it? You only did one uh, spec when it was show. Nice job. Off of that. We got a lot of jobs <laughs> off of that. Tons of jobs episode, off of that. Which is funny. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah. But um, nowadays, original material, and we know plenty of playwrights who've gotten hired. We know yeah. people who've gotten hired off of a great short story. Yeah. A couple people. Yeah. Vina. Vina ended up uh, really. Getting the getting the right to be the the person who developed um, the killing off of a short story that she wrote actually, that's how she convinced um, the, the the rights holders that you know she was a good person to to use. So it's really about you know good writing. <laughs> yeah, easy. <laughs> I, do, I do think that in, in comedy, there's still a little bit of specking. Yeah, you're right. Yeah, you're I, right. I think Sorry, we're, in, just we're very limited. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But in in drama, I would say there's not a lot of specking. What was stuff that you guys read in putting uh, in putting rooms together that struck you? Besides, you know, good writing, sure. Yes, you need I, that. Yeah. I enjoyed that process quite a bit uh, because I was looking for people who added very diverse voices, you know, <laughs> and figuring out who was going to be... We, we hired a, a wonderful writer named Becky Kirsch, uh, off of uh, a spec script that she she had written, she had worked on other shows, but the the spec odds of it ever selling were even she knew were next to none. It was far far too outlandish. It was gothic uh, horror, and you know it just the marketability wasn't there. But it was appropriate for the show. I loved the tone, uh, and so was very excited uh, uh, to have her come in. But mostly, I just wanted to see things that didn't read like everything else and unfortunately a lot of your writing samples are from shows that are really you know mm. crappy broad shows <laughs> and so like we they just can't stand out and, and often writers voices are off, uh, watered down by the show that mm-hmm. they're on mm-hmm. so they can't stand out 
but uh, so in that regard, I guess that's probably why I, I like the specs that I was given more than than the. I would say that that I did actually. There was a writer that submitted a Deadwood spec or the, mm-hmm. to the show, um, which I was just impressed that she wrote a Deadwood spec. <laughs> I mean, that, that's it was and, and it read right. like an episode of Deadwood, and and it felt you know we have flashbacks in our show, and it felt that you know she was capable of obviously writing historical, uh, historically relevant dialogue and what have you. So in that regard, it was interesting to read a spec, but I think it was the only spec that, that we that we were sent, quite honestly. So, And it was a lot of short stories, and there's a lot of short stories out there, and I think you can, I think a really good short story can, can sell just as well as a great piece of spec yeah. material. Because I think a lot of times what it is, is it's writers reading the material. Yeah. You know, executives are going to like different things, almost always. But when it finally, when your work finally gets to, hopefully it can get to a showrunner, creator who is trying to staff their their show, they are writers. And they appreciate great mm. writing. And even if it's weird writing, if it's not particularly, you know, exactly what they're looking for, a short story that shows that this is somebody who really knows how to, you know, how to tell a story, somebody, how to use words. Somebody you know. with a unique voice. Yeah. yeah. That's, Absolutely. You know. Great. Uh, other questions? Yeah. As you're developing your original ideas, but especially while you're in the writer's room, how much, if at all, do you take into account your audience, and especially I'm thinking about the international audience. Do you even think about that at all in, in your show's future life? Is that something that even crosses your mind? I mean, I think for your show to yeah. a certain extent, you know. My, my show's an internationally co-financed show, uh, and I've sold a couple other things that are also in, in similar models. Uh, now, I, everyone who's ever met with me thought I was British to begin with because, <laughs> like, seven of my script, scripts that are out there are all set with, in England or with all British characters. Uh, it's just because of copyright. Uh, well, it's just... It, <laughs> Actually, we were talking about this earlier. I just don't want to live in America. And if somebody pays me to go live somewhere else for nine months, I'm half Australian, so half of me is always outside the country anyway. And so, you know, send me to Budapest or, or England uh, for your great. That, that sounds amazing. Uh, it just sounds like a, a, a really amazing vacation. Uh, so I, I, I mimic the voice already uh, quite well, uh, uh, though... It, it is amusing. Uh, we were talking about the stupid things I say out loud because I think uh, you should just be honest. But we had debates early on where the, the Brits would try to tell me what language was appropriate for the period and would, would try to sort of one-up me. And I'd have to explain, like, no, Shag actually was around 200 years before this. It's the first recorded instance, and it's pretty normalized. By the, and you'd have these arguments where they just get offended because I was outbritishing them. And, <laughs> Uh, so to that degree, there's some there, there's taking that into account, and certainly with what I do, it's and I think Sleepy Hollow probably I, I don't know how it plays overseas, I, but it's it's a I, actually a, Tom Meissen does help us mm. on, in terms of the UK, I mean, mm. him being a, a British actor, but um, and I I don't know our metrics overseas unfortunately, yeah. but I think the show I mean. Ultimately, Tom does give us the ability to be able to sort of play overseas, and, and you know the character was not originally conceived as as British; it was originally conceived as American. Um, but every American actor just delivered the lines like they were Christian Bale in Batman, mm. basically. Um, so it, it just it, it, it was just it didn't work. Well, um, yeah. Well, while I have a leading man playing a uh, Romanian. Uh, posing as an American who, as played by an Englishman. <laughs> by a Brit. Uh, <laughs> so it's, 
<laughs> but yes, uh, but it, it, the uh, the brand stuff also helps. Uh, yes. If you're, if I'm not sure how you guys do it because you write real television. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't. We don't think about uh, an international audience. We really don't. But then, you know, The Killing did very well. Mm-hmm. Internationally. The American version yeah. did do well internationally, even though, you know, the Danish version was already out there. We should talk a little bit. I mean, all of these shows have sort of uh, vocal and rabid fan bases. Uh, what is the relationship like between the creators and the audience? How much, uh, how much is it a conversation? How much is it a one-sided conversation? I think that you know, we um, made a conscious effort on the show to reach out to people through Twitter and, and, and what have you. So we definitely want to have that conversation with, with fans. Um, but it's, you know, it's, a, it's a delicate conversation. You, know, you, you have to be careful that they don't feel as though you have to do what they say. Right. Um, you know, but it, it's definitely, I mean, I, I pay a lot of attention to it. I think that it's, it's an important way of sort of seeing whether something's working or not. You know, when when the finale uh, aired, I was watching like in live time, seeing the East Coast feed anyway, um, just seeing how it was playing. I mean, you can it's a it's a real metric. You yeah, can you really have see a it. Real, you can have a real sense of yeah. you know, how it's it's, going it's over. pretty amazing. Yeah. So in, in that regard, I think it's great. I, I think it's I think that it's great. I think the fans should feel like they're a part of the show. I think that you know any way that we can make them feel that way, it's good. Can we talk about the uh, fan response to the second season of The Killing? And, and I, you know, I fear, and I, I think I said this on our Austin panel too, that people didn't tune in to that really great third season yeah. uh, because they were kind of turned off by that second season, which is a bummer. Yeah, I, yeah. Think, I think you're right. Yeah, we, we would probably have a completely different perspective yeah. on um, fan base and <laughs> so on um, because what happened for those of you who didn't watch it is in the Danish show did two seasons with solving one murder, which is exactly how our first two seasons were laid out, one murder over two seasons. And uh, but you know, perhaps because the advertising was who killed Rosie Larson, people expected to get an answer by the end of the first season. Yeah. Which they did not. It was a cliffhanger and we never planned to answer that until the end of the second season. And uh, the the people, you know, on the, the Internet went insane, basically. <laughs> and, you know, Some so, of them did. There were plenty who just went, I kind of liked it. <laughs> so, But, you know, as opposed to... I yeah, mean, I, I mean, we should say, like, the quality of the show was exactly the same. Exactly the same. Uh, just yeah, as good think, as it was. And I think the end of the, the second season was really good. Yeah. But, you know, it just became something that people who watch TV seized on. You know, critics wrote about it, mm-hmm. and then... Um, I actually, you know, I am someone who doesn't read any of that. Don will read it. I won't read it. Because, <laughs> yeah. um, like in this case, it was extremely personal ex- mm-hmm. against Vina, extremely negative. Yeah. They referred to the color of her skin. They yeah. recurred to, they um, referred to her sex using, yeah. like, words that I probably shouldn't use in mixed company yeah. or in any company. All sorts of weird racism and, you know, Sexism uh, and misogyny came out. <laughs> Directed at Little Venus Dude. It was yeah. just like a writer trying to do a good show. But, you know, the fact that it's anonymous, most of it, mm-hmm. gives people, you know, this freedom, I guess a feeling of freedom to express themselves however they want. Mm-hmm. And it was so ugly and really just demoralizing if you read it, you know, that we just sure. had to basically say, you know. 
I would say that the, the comment yeah. boards tend to be a little bit worse than, yeah. than Twitter for the most yeah. part. Oh, yeah. yeah not Twitter. Twitter. Twitter, yeah. Twitter, is, yeah. Twitter is actually very positive. But did the conversation uh, in the room and among the creators change for seasons three and four? Um, as far as making them a little more closed-ended? I mean, four, obviously. Oh, you're, you know you're wrapping well, up. absolutely. But. We knew, you know, well, we're not going to do that again. <laughs> we're not stupid. Um, and But I think... It didn't make us, but we didn't change anything else. Mm-hmm. We, the difference was, I think, for that third season, it, it was really our it was our story because we weren't. That's it wasn't good. part of the, the Danish killing. Did not do that story, and um, that may have been what made it even better too, because we weren't we weren't inspired by a show that was already inspired by a bunch of American shows. <laughs> you know, so we, it was a str- there was a strange kind of yeah. thing. Then it was just us coming to you know pulling together a whole bunch of stories that we were really interested in. So. Makes a lot of sense. I recommend for anyone who hasn't seen season three. I think it's on Netflix streaming now. Yes, it now, is. Right? It's on Netflix. Now. Um, yeah. Check it out. It's really one of the best seasons of TV yeah. in the past. And couple you don't of years. have to watch the first season, no. first two seasons at all. You can just jump into the no, third that season. Does help. It, it helps. helps but, you can always go yeah. back and watch it if you want. But. Yeah. 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 Uh, and and do you know when uh, four premieres? You know what we should. But June. We, is it June? I believe it's oh, okay. June. And it's yeah. just Netflix, so yeah. you know you yeah. can just binge it. <laughs> yeah. Binge and and it. we as we as we break it right now, we we sit around the room going, I think that everyone is going to sit and watch all six all at once because it's 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 very exciting. Does it change the way you break a story? It does. It does. Every now and then uh, we'll have to stop and say, wait, there are going to be people who sit and watch all of these together. So we really have to track it. We really have to track all the details and be consistent. Otherwise, you know, there'll be glaring differences. Uh, We have time for one more question, if there is one. Come on. Really? Yeah, come on. Do you guys have any uh, odd quirks or uh, different traditions that you have when you sit down to write? Like, do you play music or, you know, have a favorite glass of juice? (laughs) (laughs) The two most popular quirks. (laughs) Um, You know, that is a good question. What does your process look like when you are actually writing? I listen to movie scores generally because it doesn't. I can't listen to anything with lyrics, or it's 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 too distracting. Um, I go with the Dragon Tattoo score. I listen All to the a time. lot. Yeah, it's I think it's very atonal, and it's just sort yeah. of it's. So I don't know what that says, but right. yeah. Um, Nicole and I sit across from each other, and we eat yogurt. <laughs> what flavor? Uh, uh, the kind that you get at the at Starbucks. Oh, okay. Well, that's because we spent probably and we've always had an office somewhere, but then when we go off to write, we can't write at home. Yeah. So we spent years, ten, twelve years working in Starbucks. Yeah. Until my back gave out, and then we had to find somewhere else to move. But yeah. so we just got used to drinking Starbucks. And we drink our coffee, in, eat our yogurt. across. <laughs> <laughs> It's very exciting. It's, it's very exciting. Very, it's, yeah. it's, it's a glamorous. It's a glamorous job, very you guys. <laughs> really, really. Uh, Cole? Uh, I, I listen to music occasionally. I'll toss on records. Mostly, though, my wife would complain that my process is I wake up and 10 minutes later I'm in front of the computer in my boxers. And I, I then go to the gym every other day at lunch or shower at that time. And... Uh, uh, and so that's, it, she finds it really obnoxious. I spend four or five hours just working straight before I acknowledge the world exists. But uh, that's pretty impressive, uh, though, that you can get that much 
time just, just yeah. before. Yes, 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 my wife is pregnant. Uh, uh, yeah, oh, I, I, but I write eight hours a day. Uh, thank you. Uh, I write eight hours a day, uh, and so it's. It, I like to maximize it all, and I have to watch a movie a day, uh, or I go crazy. And so uh, that also will change. I know, I know. In a good way. <laughs> yes, but it's. Just, I, I have a very carefully structured day. That uh, my wife, who's also a writer, she her movie Devils Do uh, uh, opened and somewhat bombed uh, uh, this last month. Um, uh, it was very difficult. Uh, <laughs> But uh, but it, I, I'm I'm very structured about it all to pack everything in uh, during the day. Uh, that's actually my I guess that's my quirk. Uh, my day is so allotted out half an hour for a foreign language and you go to gym every other day and all of these things. Watch a movie. Yeah. It's a serious discipline. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. But it's, uh, I mean, What's I, wrong with you? I, I, but I, I just <laughs> hopefully write when I yeah when I can. And then I, I'll tell you that this is this is what fixed that for me though and taught me how to do this. I came out here getting paid between 10 and 25 cents a word as a journalist. <laughs> so often it would require uh, me to turn around sometimes 10, 15,000 words in a week and I'd be working for 20 hours straight. And that was involving transcription, which also taught me a lot about how different people speak. But so it, it just became normal to sit for 10 hours and write and not complain about it. And so now when people talk about writer's block, I understand it happens, but I just go. It, it, I think I'm from Michigan. It's all blue collar, collar background. Like nobody complains. They, my, my friends are accountants. They don't get to say, uh, "I don't feel like dealing with numbers today." It's just it, it became normalized to just abuse myself uh, to get my bills paid. Uh, and so now I don't know how to do anything else, or I get angsty. Oh, don't get me wrong. I abuse myself. Yeah. Just in very, yes, in very different ways. That is at three fifteen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let me ask you guys just very briefly this has been coming up on the panels quite often uh, and starting with Cole I'd be curious to hear your answers do you enjoy writing? I don't know how to do anything else it's, it's the greatest thing in the world I, I, I build worlds and people I don't know if I'm, how good I am at it but people at, for the moment are paying me to do it and I, I'm I don't write, I get miserable. I get on planes and I write for nine hours straight when I go to Europe like twice a year just to, to stay sane. And uh, I write you know, the whole time. I get there, I have to write two hours in the morning before I do anything or else I can't enjoy the day. Mm-hmm. Like I was, we just went to Paris, Austria, and Germany this year and I, I, it's like, oh, Paris is outside or I could write for two hours or else I'm not going to enjoy it. So I, I love it. It's, it's, uh, it's amazing to me. Uh, I mean, I, I've heard every writer say this on the panel, but I mean, I love having written. I don't yeah, actually exactly. like the process mm. of writing. Um, and I think there was a, a great um, Matt Weiner quote, and I'm sure he's quoting somebody else, about how writing for TV is like a pie eating contest where the prize is more pie. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I really feel like that sums up so writing so television. So, I mean, it's great. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I can't complain, right. but. Yeah. I think the best part of, of writing. Um, television is is standing on the set behind a monitor, just watching like great actors say your words. That is great. Everything else is horrible. But, uh, that's true. That's it. Although yeah. the audition process of, of hearing people read your words oh, poorly. Oh yeah, that's bad. The, I mean, you hit your own words yeah. so quickly. Yeah. It's amazing. You're just like I. I oh, suck. Yeah. 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 I guess I would have fall in the category of people who enjoy having written. Yeah. But I will, you know, we've written 
a lot and we've written for many years and the first act is always the hardest mm -hmm. and it's always a bitch and then if you can get past that then it starts rolling a little at least for us yeah. our process yeah. and then it does become slightly more pleasurable but then yeah. you know knowing that you're going to be getting notes and having to do a major rewrite <laughs> just like yeah. enjoy it for now go yeah. out and celebrate you finished a draft because you yeah. know it's going to change tomorrow anyone I, who says they like a blank page with a blinking cursor is lying to themselves yeah. <laughs> I'll, I'll also add that there's so much potential there and so much you can still oh. fuck off oh. Uh, <laughs> so much potential but, but it, I think something else that helps me is always having something I'm working on that I have almost no intention of selling that I mean, maybe it will but like I'm researching a no novel right now and just things that I write for fun and so that, I, that writing isn't simply a job that, that it's something that I enjoy doing and maybe my wife's going to read it maybe I'll like I'm as an ex-journalist I'm going to start doing interviews I, there's a non-fiction cinema book I want to do and it's just you know it's writing it's something I enjoy and uh, it makes the other stuff when I'm doing something that isn't that's when it starts getting frustrating uh, when you get that that 20th note on the 20th free rewrite uh, <laughs> yeah. it it, uh, it makes that a little bit more bearable that's a good point um, starting here again with Colin going down the line what are you watching on television what are your what what is your wife your friends your room talking about what's getting you excited or inspired today uh, you know I'm it's funny because uh, this. Sorry for not having a quick answer, but I I only recently came back to television as something that that I enjoy. Uh, I, I seriously watch a movie a day. I maintain an average of about 320 movies a year, wow. and this year I'm finally deciding that I'm going to to flip and uh, and now switch to watching television, only watching like six or seven uh, movies a day. And so for the most part, uh, it's not day uh, a month, but for the most part, uh, lately it's been game. Of Thrones, and we just started House of Cards. Uh, Wait, what, I, what movies are you watching? How do you even find a movie to watch every day? <laughs> oh my god, uh, my Netflix queue is like 500 long. Yeah, mine too, but I don't want to watch any of them. <laughs> oh. <laughs> this, this, but this, this is, I think, it's, it's so important, I think. It, most of the stuff that I've sold, like Dracula didn't turn out, ex you know, like it wasn't exactly how the, the first pilot you know, was, but it was born really from Hammer films, and all of these, you know, obscure horror films and there are references to like Mario Bava films and all of this stuff that, that's in it that comes from watching just uh, these crazy films and you know from all around the world uh, do you do a lot of rewatching? Uh, yeah, some. It's probably about twenty-five percent of the films I watch each year are, are rewatching of things. Uh, and I, this is so ri ridiculous. It's still not a lot. I, <laughs> I, I, I love lists, but uh, I'm, I'm driven by lists. But I, I have a lot of now a lot of artist friends, and so in general, I choose a theme each month. And I, and or an artist friend of mine will choose a theme, and I put it on Facebook, and every one of my friends suggests all the films that I should watch that I've never seen, why it's important to them, and it becomes this whole communal thing in which I. Experience cinema now through other people's Your eyes life because is like I've, a sociology experiment. It I don't, is. I don't, I don't it is. Is someone tracking you? I, I, I don't. Yes, Netflix is. Uh, but it's. I, I don't know. It's just like I. I, I enjoy this stuff so much, and uh, and so I'm only now uh, after two years of being into the television thing, which it was difficult to watch television when you're in it. I, I sort of had to step back. 
that uh, now I'm watching things that uh, Joss Whedon didn't write, which is, is a nice change of pace. What, what movies have you watched lately that you could recommend to us that maybe we haven't seen? Uh, I guarantee I, we this, haven't seen them. Yeah. <laughs> this, this, this last six weeks, I've only been watching uh, the, the films that are allegedly up or considered the best of uh, the year, really. I love the last year. So I've been watching a lot of foreign films and a lot of documentaries. And uh, if you haven't seen Spring Breakers, it's amazing. Uh, but uh, The Square, The Act of Killing, these are, I mean, amazing, uh, amazing yeah. foreign films. The Hunt, if, you know, also uh, outstanding. Uh, yeah. All right. Good answer. <laughs> Um, I do not watch one movie a day, <laughs> although I wish I did. Yeah. I, I would love to do that. Um, it takes a lot of discipline. <laughs> More discipline than I have. So I have mostly, um, I am not a big TV watcher at all, and um, I'm not really sure why that is. It's, it's ridiculous probably, but um, the things I've enjoyed lately, I saw, I liked Broadchurch. Mm-hmm. I liked The Returned, which is a French series, oh, and I've been watching... Spiral, which is Spiral, which is a French series that's on Netflix. I heard that was great. Yeah, I'm in the second season of that. I'm really enjoying it. And um, those are good answers. Yeah, (laughs) we accept those. I also, I also find myself not watching a lot of television. Um, Watching the Olympics right now, (laughs) but. I'm watching, I just started watching the show The Fall because, I, you told me about it, right? Because of something that Lydia. we're, oh, Lydia, uh, something we're working on, um, which is, is really interesting, but, um, and I know what I want to watch. What's something that Dan was talking about? That, the one you saw, the mirror thing? Do, do you know what you're Black Mirror? Black Mirror. I'm not watching it, but I want to watch that Black Mirror show. Yeah, I watched that. Though. But, oh, I, don't, but I'm not, I don't have direct TV, so I can't, I can't watch it. But I want to watch that. It's really good. Yeah. Okay. Um, I I used to watch a lot more television until I started working in television. Exactly. Um, But True Detective, I'm loving True Detective. Mm. Um, You know, Girls, I really love as well. Uh, Justified, I think, is so woefully underrated in terms of people just. I don't know why people don't watch it. in the Americans, American Horror Story. A lot of the stuff on FX, I think, is, is pretty great. You watch so much television. <laughs> what are you talking about? Well, I, mean, yeah. <laughs> I used to watch more. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah, it, it's in Hannibal. I just finished the first season of is Hannibal, right? which is mm. spectacular. I don't know how they made that show on on the budget. They made that show on it's yeah. it's mm-hmm. immaculate. So, good answers. You're a winner. Thanks. Uh, please give a round of applause <laughs> to all of our panelists: Nicole Haddon, Nicole. Please give a round of applause to Nerdist Industries and Meltdown Comics. <laughs> Goodbye. Now leaving Nerdist.com. Nerdist.com.